mahia te kai, ka timu te tai, ka pao te toria. Work at getting food for the tide is ebbing and the oyster catcher strikes. Nā mana e nā reo he mihi tēnei ki a koutou katoa e aretāringa mai ana ki tēnei hōtaka a te ahikā. I'm Mariah Rakuraku. No mai, haere mai anō and welcome to Te Ahikā, our Kaupapa Māori program on Radio New Zealand National. Last weekend, a new exhibition opened at Aratoi Museum of Art and History in Masterton. The Wairarapa Moana exhibition looks at the early history of the Lake Wairarapa area from Featherston, Greytown Carterton in the south, to Bahiatua in the north. While the rest of us slept in, Justine Murray was there taking it all in. A journey of a different kind is the focus of my talk with Dr Clive Aspen, whose ancestors travelled across oceans to a new land, and he's done the same, even if the trip's a bit shorter than those of ancient tradition. He's one of the more than 60,000 Māori who contribute to the culture and economy of Australia. I do feel a certain anxiety <laughs> about being <laughs> about being in Australia, but I do. But then I balance that against against other other imperatives in my life. So yeah, I do feel a certain amount of of anxiety sometimes, but I am comforted also by the fact that there are there are thousands and thousands of other Māori who have chosen to live in Australia, and in fact we're really doing what our ancestors have been doing for the last two or three hundred years going to and from Australia. And I, I, I guess I'm also comforted from the fact that I'm very fortunate to be able to come back to New Zealand on a regular basis. Māori guilt. We'll talk more about that and the work Clive Aspen does for the health of its Indigenous population. Later in Te Ahika, we'll hear from Kiriata Stewart. She's one of the editors of a book promoting the role of Māori beliefs and practices in the creation of cities. When I was, uh, I was you know, thinking about the big themes, um, one of the themes I ran across was a quotation from Serapan Ngata, and he was saying that uh, knowledge should be lost if we don't look after it. He said, the time for hiding Māori cultural treasures is past. They shouldn't be lost. You and others should have them kept as the Pākehā keeps his records and knowledge in print on bookshelves that those who care may read and learn. And I love the fact he talks about those who care because it's, that's a big word about caring and cherishing. We've got to look after that knowledge and we've got to value it. But it's not a new idea that we've got to record these things. And we finish this week's edition of Te Ahika with Matt Ransom. He's excited about the first ever inaugural Māori Taekwondo tournament. Up and down New Zealand there are a lot of Māori people performing and, and uh, competing in the sport and uh, we really just want give, to give that a, a higher profile and, and, and let, let our Māori people know that uh, it's, a, it's a fantastic uh, sport, it's a great lifestyle and uh, there is a pathway to the Olympics. Nā reira e tiwi, kia mau mai te rongo ki tēnei hōtaka a te ahikā. Bōna sarin tu te ahikā, Radio Nationaland National. A few weeks ago, the waka, the heke rangatira, made a journey from a storage shed at Te Papatongarewa, the National Museum in Wellington. But it didn't go by sea. Instead, having undergone restoration, it returned by road to the Wairarapa, where it's now the proud centrepiece of an exhibition about the area. Last Saturday, Justine Murray attended the opening of Wairarapa Moana at Aratoi Museum of Art and History in Masterton. The exhibition's been a bittersweet experience for the iwi of the area, as we'll hear in her report. It's early in the morning and a group of 200 people are attending the hakapohiri.
As the pōhiri begins, the haka Wairarapa Moana is performed by some of the local school kids. A crowd of 200 move onto Aratoi Museum, Masterton. Another queer of Wairarapa are performing the karanga to welcome the manuhiri into the Wairarapa Moana exhibition that launches today here at Aratoi Museum. And in front of the crowd are the, the kaiwero. Haere mai ki te whakātūranga o Wairarapa Moana he pātaka kōrero, he pātaka kai. He nui o nga kōrero a tāhua, he nui o nga kai ki roto. Engari tērā nō te tahi atu kōrero, Wairarapa Moana he wai rākau, he wai whakangaro i te tangata. He pēnei te iwi nei te minita, he nui i ngā kōrero a tāhua mō te iwi nei, engari he nui i ngā whakatūpato tanga hoki. Ara mai, ara mai ki wairera pa moana, pātaka kōrero, pātaka kai. Tēnā pūtau, eo a tātaka. Justin Murray, New Zealand National, here with Hami Te Whaiti. Kia ora, Hami. Kia ora. So, does this feel, I mean, we heard two years in the making this exhibition, Wairarapa and Moana, does it feel like it's a sense of, well, accomplishment, really, on your part? Well, yes, well, it's probably two years of stretching it a bit. It was just over a year, just over a year. And... Initially, it was about trying to find out whether we were able to, going to be able to uh, return to Hikirangatira. Um, and um, most of the work for the actual exhibition has taken place this year um, in um, collecting all the, all the taonga apart from Te Hikirangatira. We've had um, amazing um, support from um, all the different businesses um, who've um, given of their machinery and their time um, to help us get the thing installed, get the exhibition installed. Um, we've had um, uh, lots of um, uh, support also from Fano who have Tonga, and um, you know I want to make special mention of various you know of our Fano um, and um, some of the um, uh, Pakeha Fano you know living around the lake. Um, there are. Um, you know, lots of taonga in private collections, both within our whānau and in um, Pākehā whānau as well. And um, they've all made their, well, they've been quite significant taonga that have been made available for us for this exhibition. Now, this is the biggest undertaking at Aratoi Museum, isn't it? Um, yeah, this is the biggest exhibition that we've curated ourselves, um, apart from the opening, of course. But um, this is... Um, this is this is the yeah this is the biggest exhibition that Aratoi has has curated. So how many? Just to give an idea of, of where you are, are, are you you're a local Wairarapa? I, I'm from um, I'm from South Wairarapa. So. I um, grew up, I born in Manbar, and then I um, my family moved up to Mangakino to farm the pumice lands of Pauakani, and um, so sort of it's in me really. And then to, for the last 25 years, I've been living back in me and my family, been living back in the Wairarapa, and um, so um, yeah so. It's been a personal journey for you. It, it, it has, yeah. It's, a, it's been. I've, we've, you know, I've lived wider up in Moana, um, its story, um, its people, and um, you know, travelling um, backwards and forwards from Mangakino to come back and see our whanos here every year, um, tangi and you know, hui and Christmases and. So, how many? Just to give um, people an idea of the space, how many sections? How many uh, themes are within the exhibition? Um, there's, um, there's about um, 17 main um, text panels, and they cover um, a wide range of themes um, from uh, the, the actual history of the Iwi and Wairarapa is in another gallery, so um, you don't necessarily find that in here, you'll find some of that. But it's really starting from the, um, the interaction, the first settlement of the um, Pākehā um, coming here, 
Um, so there's a theme about that, you know, the colonisation, and um, what happened when the Pākehā people um, had with the land around the Lake Wairarapa. Um, there's the themes about um, um, the uh, there's there's a theme around the um, the battle, if you like, um, the tensions and the battle that that came about from uh, the um, com competing interests of uh, Māori and uh, the European settlers. Um, there's obviously a theme about Tehikirangatira. There's a themes about the lake, the ecolo ecological um, systems of the lake, the geological story of the lake. There's a theme about how the lake um, has been diverted. Um, at one time it was like 1,300 square miles of catchment, so it was basically the whole of the Wairarapa, excluding the coast area. Um, and um, how the catchment of the lake itself, our Wairapa Mona, has been reduced to something like 100. So it's less than 10% of the catchment. So that's, the, that's the, um, the, the amount of water that doesn't go there. So there's a theme about um, how, that, um, how, that, you know, how that was done, um, how the, the river was diverted um, past our, our Mona. The theme um, towards the back area of the gallery, where what they had, like, what it up today. They mentioned the yeah, Carterton yeah, Mayor, yeah. Georgina Bayer yeah. being the first transsexual. Yeah, that's right. There's, um, so it's about restoration, um, and um, there's, there's a um, about a vision for the for the future. Um, as you can, as you may have heard, that 500 there's a 500 year vision that's being um, developed, or the head was developed by Iwi, working with the. Um, um, the government agencies and the local agencies, and um, so there's, a, there's that um, story here as well. So, Hami, we've got the Hekerangatira in front of us, the waka. What was the significance of everybody putting a, a row or a leaf inside? It's a practice of our people. When a waka is going on a journey, on a journey um, they place the kawakawa leaves in, inside of it. But what might come and I will trade that out for you. That's my understanding. So, um, so this is a journey, this is a journey of this, the corridor for this waka has sort of been sitting <coughs> in museums where its story hasn't really been understood and um, I'm hoping that, um, you know, that, that uh, I mean, reuniting it with the Wairarapa was the best thing to get um, uh, to understand its, its, its whakapapa. Hamid Te Whaiti, uh, Māori curator of the exhibition Wairarapa Moana. Kia ora Kia ora. Kia ora Rawari Smith, ne? Hi, Rawari Smith. Ko maanga raki te maanga, ko uh, roa maanga te awa, ko uh, hirunui o rangi te marae, ko ngāti kahununu uh, te iwi. So, we're here, Wairarapa Moana, the opening. Hi. Just with you looking at everything and taking in everything, it's definitely a good day for kahununu people? Aye, for, the, for, uh, for the rohi? Awesome day for kahununu people. Um, one thing about our, our river and our, our uh, lake, Wairarapa Moana and, and our uh, waterways, is that sometimes they're out of people's minds because um, the main uh, thoroughfares don't go past our, uh, our places. And so sometimes... Uh, People don't know too much about... Uh, you mean people just go through the town without go, stopping? Go through the town without stopping and they don't uh, realise what, what there is. For example, at Taupo, you can go around the, our, our moana there and say, oh, too much. But uh, Wairarapa Moana is the second biggest freshwater lake in the North Island. And uh, because you only go past it if you're on the uh, train, um, sometimes we, we don't appreciate... Uh, its worth and its value and now we're bringing it out from the darkness into the light and uh, for six months here at uh, Aratoi we're celebrating all the different aspects about Wairarapa Moana. Now Rawiri with your mahi um, being resource consent you know the ecological impacts of Lake Wairarapa over the course of some 40-60 years has been really detrimental to the area and to the people. I am um, there's uh, always a kind of a, a, a tension between uh, farmers on one hand and cultural uh, aspects on another hand and even some of our cultural uh, um, trade in terms of uh, tuna and other things that we used to have from the lake. Uh, there's been a, uh, a conflict 
and um, as many things in, in New Zealand, it's fall in the way of, New, of Pākehā New Zealanders rather than Māori New Zealanders. At the moment, uh, the water being taken from our uh, waterways uh, um, puts a stress between the groundwater, the water bodies like lakes, and the water bodies like the river. So uh, in a certain area around Wairarapa Moana, all those three things come together. And so as a resource consent officer, we're getting people asking for water all the time from groundwater, and we're saying, well, one, we don't know how much there is in the groundwater because uh, it's hard to quantify the aquifer. But in the second part is, how does this affect our lake and other water bodies? And so um, in a very special area to us, we've still got unanswered questions in 2010. And so at least we're asking the questions now. 60 or 70 years ago, we might have just said, we've got all the answers when we didn't even have all the questions back then. Yeah. So, um, Rawiri, we're standing in front of this particular area, the, a torrent of colonists, the arrival of European settlers. Um, you know, when you see the history on the walls of this exhibition, you know, what, do you, what, what comes to your mind? Um, sometimes the best documented histories are European histories rather than our Māori histories. Because our Māori histories may have been kōrero, oral. Well, yes, kōrero, but in, in this area we actually wrote them down, so there's no reason why we shouldn't have them uh, a little more exposed to everyone, because our uh, tōhunga, before they closed the Farewānanga, sat down and uh, uh, spoke to one of the students who had learned Pākehā kōrero and writing and skills and all of those things, and he wrote them all down. But um, I guess in terms of prioritising which history we want to hear, now uh, the old kōrero idea before, oh, we can't remember, or uh, we've lost all that kōrero, well, we've always had it, but not too many people are wanting to bring it out. And so we stand in front of a torrent of colonists uh, and the arrival of European settlers. And one of the things is one of the first um, uh, sheep stations was here in Wairarapa. And so, um, unfortunately, we invented it for everybody else to uh, get their sheep on and to cut down all our trees and plant uh, the national tree uh, grass. And so um, we, we apologise to the rest of the nation for not stopping it dead in the tracks right there. But, um, yeah, the, the, I don't know that they, of course, appreciated uh, the area like Wadarapa Moana in the way that we did. And it's always been a fight to try and bring that into the open. So during the six months, we got an opportunity to say to people like the Regional Council and that strange whistle, the Regional Council and the um, uh, flood protection people from there, hey, this is what, why it's important to us. Can we have some flushing through? I don't know if we got anything. <laughs> hey, Rawari, are any of your old people in here, pictures? Uh, yeah, um, we're actually looking at a picture of uh, in, a, in, a, in a flash uh, in a flash suit a uh, uh, manahira Arangataki Iwaho and uh, he, he was a very interesting guy because Who is uh, he to you, Rawari? He's from our own uh, from my hapu in uh, uh, Ngāti Moi and um, he's a uh, been a leader uh, in terms of the early days but um of course, there's people further back. Uh, I remember uh, uh, some more tear tear about losing one of our partuna. So one of our whanau was so in love with his partuna because of uh, the way that it could get the um, partuna is, is a, like a, yeah eel traps, but built in the river, you know. And so the the partuna um, would be uh, nowadays our white baiters have those kind of. Uh, nets, oh, yeah. 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 And back in the day, we used to channel the whole river to come to a certain point where we could trap with the hinaki at the back end. It's kind of a, a directioning of our eel to the hinaki. And that's a partuna. That's a partuna. And the partuna um, was lost in a flood. And one of my uh, tipuna, we have uh, his his uh, mortiety is saved. Uh, and he was born before what, um, uh, colonists came to Wairarapa. And he was crying about his partuna. And uh, he was thinking, oh no, I gotta, you know, that was the best place on the river. And sometimes when you look at it, those uh, people who are white baiters, 
they look like they're having the same kind of enjoyment sitting <laughs> on the side of the stream, just watching things go by, especially if they get a lot of weight, but then, uh, you know, the fritters are going off. I'm uh, Marama Fox from Wadarapa, um, Ngāti Kahunganu, um, Maungaraki Te Maungarua Mahanga Te Awa, uh, Huranui Orangi Te Marae. As we're sitting here looking at um, these two placards in front of us, Settling the Land, the 800-year history of Wairarapa. I mean, what are you what are you taking in as we're sitting here? I know it's it's quite difficult. Sometimes it's like it's such a momentous occasion to have this um, exhibition celebrating our our um, lake and bringing home our waka. And then you sit here and it's telling me that in 1880, um, 1880. The landed gentry of Wairarapa, their biggest um, income was from farming and sheep farming. So in the 40 years from the signing of the treaty to 1880, we'd already lost all of our land. They'd already turned all of our forests and, and um, you know, wahitapu as well into farming land. And we were in a position of poverty and um, had been stripped of all our resources. So it's a little sad. <laughs> it's a little sad when you see that and you think that um, Wairarapa Moana was part of the deal. You know, our rivers all flowed into Ruamahanga and Ruamahanga flowed into Wairarapa Moana. And from Wairarapa Moana, we took 20 tonne of eel every two years and that was what we traded with and that is what we lived on plus the, the birds from the bush. But in the 40 years from the signing of the treaty, we've got no forest left. The, river, the lake has been taken, our pātaka kai. The water quality of the lake is, is pretty dire. It is. It is. And we and one of the things we're trying to do is have the river return to its natural course to go through the lake and um, so that it flushes that through again and it gets that um, oxygenation of the water um, and, you know, being able to revive the fish stock. But even things like um, our native fish, uh, they brought in you know, other more dominant species that sort of killed all our native fish off. So, you know, those things can never be reclaimed. But it is pretty dire. And if you're going to pour then pour um, sewage into our rivers, I mean, it's, it's worse than that. Like, yes, it's dire for our rivers, but it's dire for our communities. We can't even go swimming at the river for Christmas like we always do. You can't do it. Yes. Anyway, so we're a bit <laughs> off track. You're just saying that there's a lot. There's obviously a lot of nowhere. You I know, think there is. You in know, terms of the history, does it offer any solution for the future? Fix well, what you've been. Yeah, about? absolutely. I mean, our tūpuna believed in um, kōtahitanga. You know, our um, they they roamed the country. They had a um, the Māori Parliament established at Papawai. I mean, Wairarapa has a huge um, and wonderful history of Māori um, taking action, positive action, um, to sort of establish themselves as an entity but to work in harmony with Pākehā who that inevitably were going to live here. You know, over time they were just trivialised um, to the position of poverty, you know, and so it was um, cap in hand they had to go to their Pākehā leaseholders. But um, I think there is um, a future for us and that future obviously comes through unification of the people in Wairarapa um, and in harmony and partnership with, um, with Pākehā here. Justine Murray at the opening of the exhibition Wairarapa Moana held at Aratoi Museum in Masterton last weekend. It runs until May of next year. If you'd like to see photos from the event, do go to our website radionz.co.nz forward slash te ahika, that's T-E- a-H-I-K-A-A. While you're there, look at our photo gallery, check out our archive files, and why not become a friend? Follow us on Facebook. People move to another country for a variety of reasons. To start a new job, a new relationship, or just to start anew. That's not the case for Dr Clive Aspen, though. His life in Sydney, Australia, sees him continuing his research into Indigenous health. I caught up with him when he was passing through the country recently. Uh, 
and these days I live in Sydney where I work for the Poach Centre for Indigenous Health at the University of Sydney and that's based at the medical faculty in the medical school at the University of Sydney. And what's your role there? I'm what they call an Indigenous Research Fellow. So I'm basically a researcher working on Indigenous issues. And you've held that position for the past... I've been doing that since January this year. But before that, I was a, res- I was a research director for a place called the Menzies Centre for Health Policy. And I was working as a director, uh, coordinating research activities at the University of Sydney and the Australian National University for a research program that was looking at I- issues to do with chronic illness for people uh, who have either diabetes, heart disease or lung disease or possibly two of those illnesses or three of those illnesses. So we uh, interviewed a whole lot of people, probably around 66 people. We interviewed healthcare professionals, we interviewed carers and we've accumulated this huge database of qualitative data that tells us a huge amount of information about what uh, people confront in terms of challenges, barriers to services, access to service in relation to those three conditions diabetes, heart disease, lung disease, with a view to how can we how we can improve health systems to make care and support for people with those illnesses more efficient and uh, more cost effective and how we can also uh, help to prevent those illnesses in younger generations. And you've also had a particular leaning towards Māori health. Yes, I did my PhD in, in, in public health here at, in Wellington actually at the uh, Wellington Med School. Uh, I did a study of Māori gay men and transgender people who migrate to Sydney, looking at the impact of HIV on people's lives during the period of the AIDS epidemic. Okay, so if we take all of that experience, and now you're located in Sydney and you're working with Indigenous peoples Mm. over there, what are the things that you're finding that are the commonalities between Indigenous Australian experience and Māori experience? Well, there are lots of similarities, but I think the, the, one of the things that really strikes me is that is that there are so many Māori living in Australia these days. Uh, we come and go all the time, and you know I've been in the country I think less than three hours, and here I am talking to you. So, so it's a really good indication of how we stay so well connected with one another, uh, and and likewise. Māori going to Australia always have people over there with whom they can link into. So the, 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 the connections across the Tasman are really, really strong. And I think that also applies for Māori and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Most of us on this, most of us in, in New Zealand have strong connections with, with uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, especially if we've been working in the area of public health, because there are now networks that have been in place across New Zealand, Australia, Canada. Mm-hmm and America, the United States, of indigenous health researchers. Uh, and those, those, uh, those people who work in those four countries have been meeting on a regular basis for some years now. There was a, Recently there was a conference in Seattle that was attended by indigenous people from those four countries. So we've got really strong connections and ties, and they will only get stronger, I think, the more you know, as time goes by. But coming back to your question, there are lots of similarities in terms of disparities. Uh, we have, we have um, in Australia, we have significant disparities between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and the rest of the population. The larger, larger disparities, disparities than between Māori and non-Māori, but it's, you know, it, it's still a big health issue that needs to be addressed, and it's going to take a long, long, long time before those disparities are finally reduced so that there is parity. Uh, but a lot of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people also draw lots of inspiration from what's happening here in New Zealand in terms of Māori health research. My director's just been to the, uh, Auckland, who she's just met with some Māori researchers up there, and I know that when she comes back to work in Sydney, she's going to be on fire and inspired by what's happening here. So people look across to this side of the Tasman and say, you people in New Zealand are so lucky, you're so much better off than we are. And I always say to them, well, hey, hold it. It might look good from a distance, but yeah. there are still disparities in New Zealand that need to be addressed. But I think people in Australia sometimes have a little bit of a romantic view of what it's like here. And they all, often they say to me, oh, but you're lucky in New Zealand, you've got a treaty. And I say, yeah, we've got a treaty, but we've still got disparities. And whether it's nine years or 17 years in terms of life expectancy, it's still a disparity and there's still unequal treatment. And people are sometimes quite surprised to hear that it's not as rosy as it looks from a distance.
but they do tend to have a little bit of a romantic view about what's going on in New Zealand. So can we just unpack that a little bit, the yeah. thing about romantic view? Because I'm guessing that, um, I'm just using my own experience of my own whanau, when they have gone to live in Australia, they have found it easier to be Māori living there than living here. Well, I think a lot of people, a lot of Māori come to, to Australia because they want to get away from the prejudice and the racism and the discrimination. That's part and parcel of life for some Māori here in this country. So they get to Australia and it's like they can forget about that part of their life. Although at the same time, there are groups of sports people, uh, there are marais over there. So people have a strong they have a strong attachment to, to Māori, Māori as it's played out in Australia, and that's really important. Like there's a Māori church not far from where I live, and I understand you can go there and, and learn to speak te reo Māori if you, if, if you want to. So there is a lot of attachment, there is a lot of, um, there are a lot of opportunities to be Māori in Australia. When I talk about the romantic view, it's usually the white Australians who have that romantic view about how Māori are yeah, and their place in society, and, and they have this this view that, you know, that there's equity and parity and that Māori are really well off. But I think that's more to do with the fact that Māori are, uh, from, from in the eyes of Australians, Māori are quite a strong voice. Like I've heard, for example, of conferences in, in Australia where there's been a strong delegation of Māori who come to the conference and there's hardly any Aboriginal people at the conference. And I heard of an instance once where the Māori delegates at the conference berated the organisers of the conference for not ensuring that there was a strong delegation of Aboriginal Torres Strait Island people. So these people came away from the conference thinking, oh, those Māori are staunch, gee, they, you know, they know how to soccer to you. And, and if they're like that back, if they're like that at the conference, what must they be like back in New Zealand? Mm. So people tend to think that everything's much better here than, you know, than it really is for some people. So that's a white Australian view. What about Aboriginal Torres Island view? Do they? Well, I know just from my personal experience of being a health researcher that that my colleagues uh, uh, value the connections that they have with Māori researchers in, back here. And there are steps of there are there are measures there are steps in, there are measures in place at the moment to strengthen those those collaborations and partnerships. And I know the Health Research Council, for example, here and the equivalent bodies in Australia and Canada have set up a, a, a research fund which has invited people to collaborate across those three countries around health research. And those networks are getting stronger and stronger. So if we just come back to Aotearoa for a minute, statistics are constantly being hammered that Māori, we always feature negatively in statistics. And... Is that the case in the work that you've done in Australia? I mean, do is is it the same for Aboriginal Torres Islanders? Do they feature neg as negatively as we do? Yeah, I think the sad thing is is that many of the media stories, many of the stories about Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people in the media, often are negative, because I guess that's what gets headlines. And there have been some very very negative stories that I have read in the paper uh, about about issues around Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And I guess what that does disguise is, is, is that there is tremendous resilience within the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community. And many people I know draw tremendous inspiration from the fact that they've got ancestors that have been in that country for 50,000 years, that they go back so far. And I once saw a figure that said that Australia, in the time that's, that has been inhabited, inhabited by human beings, that there have been a, like something like a billion people have lived on that country in that country, you know, and we neglect the fact that there's this long, long, long history that goes back so many of thousands survival. of years. And and Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people t have great pride, take great pride in saying that they're the oldest people in the world, that they've been around longer than most other people. So while there's the 200 years of of oppression and and colonisation that's that's led to the disparities that we see today. I often say, well, that's just a blip in time compared to the 50,000 years during which people have been living in Australia. And I think people draw tremendous inspiration from that. But it doesn't stop the reality of the high death statistics. Mm. 
the chronic illness. The high incarceration. Mm. I mean, it doesn't stop that reality, does it? I mean, is it always that if you continue to compare Indigenous peoples against non-Indigenous, there's always going to be that gap? That's right. And Indigenous people are always going to be viewed as as the marginalised and the oppressed. And I think what that does is that it doesn't allow people to see the positive, resilient factors about what it means to be Indigenous. And I know within the Indigenous community in Australia, there is a move, well... It's among indigenous people themselves. It's it's easy for those resilient, positive factors to be focused because on. Because you're living see. it. Yeah, yep. Like you know, there are some amazing sporting events that happen. There's just been a rugby league t- tournament that happens every year, and indigenous people come from all over Australia and compete at this at this sports competition, and it gets a huge amount of attention within the Aboriginal community. The white mainstream media hardly ever covers it. Unless there's some incident that 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 they can they they can write up, uh, and there are there are things like that happening right throughout the country that most people have no idea about. And if you live in Sydney, it's like two realities, isn't it? That's right. If you live in Sydney, you probably never ever see an Aboriginal person, unless you go to Redfern. And most white people are too scared to go to Redfern because they think of it as as a as a place of danger, when it's actual actually a place of great cultural intensity and activity. So therefore, I mean, using your own cultural lens, Mm -hmm. are you therefore seeing the similarities between that experience and your own as a Māori? Yes, I can see similarities in terms of how, yeah, in terms of how uh, my life has panned out, being a Māori in New Zealand. Uh, I grew up at a time when my parents and my aunties and uncles, some of them, felt that it was not a good thing to be Māori. I was told by my grandmother, my Māori grandmother, that whatever I do, never to marry a Māori. I, and I was given all these negative messages as I was growing up, and I know that there are probably, it's probably the same for a lot of Aboriginal people. But today, people are starting to reclaim the, 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 the privileged status of what it means to be Indigenous. And it's a, it's a wonderful thing to be able to say that you're Indigenous because, you, you know, it makes you a little bit much more special than, than all those people who have come here since colonisation because this is our part of the world. And I know for Aboriginal people, that's exactly how they feel. They feel very, very special and very privileged to know that, that they can claim Australia as their land despite 200 years of colonisation and they can trace their ancestry back over 50,000, 60,000 years. So Clive Aspen sounds like you get a lot of heart from that. Yeah, I, I was working in a Parkour institution when I first went to Australia and I worked in the Parkour institutions before. But I have to say the job I have now is probably the most enjoyable I've ever had in all the time I've been working in Australia because I know that we are working in, in an area where we can make a difference, where we can um, where we do something that's really, really important for the for Australian society. And I have to say, I get exposed to Aboriginal issues that I would never ever get if I were working in a in a in a Parker organisation. So I feel a great sense of privilege to be doing what I'm doing. My director is an Aboriginal woman, uh, and through her, I've met a whole lot of other Aboriginal people. We have I have, no, I have Aboriginal colleagues, and I feel a great sense of privilege. And when I first went started working there, my boss would say, she'd introduce me to people and say, this is Clive, he's a Māori from New Zealand. <laughs> and that had, I have to say, that made me feel very special. <laughs> so tell me about the research program that you're involved in, chronic diseases. Well, I, I've been working uh, on chronic illnesses now for the last three years. Uh, prior to this current job, I was working in a, in a Parker institution, working on uh, health policy issues related to chronic disease. But now I'm focusing more on how the chronic illnesses impact on the lives of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So I've just been involved in uh, in doing uh, in examining how um, how Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people how are the barriers that they confront when they have chronic illnesses. And what we found is that many people have uh, 
a litany of, of negative things that happen to them when they get chronic illnesses. Uh, for example, when they have to go to doctors and nurses and healthcare workers, they have to. They often confront a significant amount of prejudice, discrimination, stigma around access to services. Uh, we do have Aboriginal medical services in Australia, and people speak very, very highly of those because they go to these services and they're surrounded by other Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander people, rather than having to go to a white mainstream hospital where they might meet a specialist, for example, who says things to them like, oh, you lot are always the same, you always come to us too late when it's too late, it's your own fault. So specialists, white specialists, are in the habit of blaming Aboriginal people for their particular sickness. Uh, and they and they treat people with in in a, in a stereotypical fashion, saying as if all Aboriginal people are the same. So we're trying to work out ways in which we can improve health health services. And I've just applied for some research funding to look at how we can improve health services for people with multi-morbid chronic illness. Because what we've found is most people with a chronic illness have not just one, but sometimes two, three, four. They can have several multiple uh, several chronic conditions. And doctors and nurses don't treat these, they tend to treat these illnesses in isolation rather than as in combination. So what we're trying to do is get people to look at illnesses in combination and then look at how we can improve health services so that we can get a much more efficient level of service. But Clive, doesn't that involve basically reconfiguring a very entrenched established medical profession. Yes, you're quite right. And I sometimes think that's insurmountable. But Australia is just going through this period of health reforms. The previous government uh, mm -hmm. put, out this, put out these quite detailed plans about how they were going to reform the health system. It's all gone on hold a little bit with the new government. Uh, but over time, we would expect there to see um, some significant changes. However, that could easily be put on the back boiler. But you're right. The, the health system is probably one of the most hierarchical systems within our society. And as we all know, most of the people at the top of that hierarchy are white men, men who have very little understanding of what it's like to be Aboriginal. They have even less understanding of what it's like to be an Aboriginal person with an illness. And often when they treat patients, they they're reluctant to involve the patient in finding solutions to their particular health problem. So the interface between white healthcare professionals and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people is often fraught with all sorts of tensions. And that sometimes means that Aboriginal people are, reluct are reluctant to go to a, um, to a white hospital or they're reluctant to go to a white specialist. And as a result, they get a much lower level of, of, of healthcare. And, and then that's... Well, they end up dying 17 years before the rest of the population. Mm -hmm. And I often say to people when I talk about uh, the research I, I do that I feel a great seal of sadness because if I were Aboriginal, I'd be dead now. Most Aboriginal men, um, the life expectancy for Aboriginal men is 59, and that's far too young. For women, it's a little bit older, but it's still far too young. So I feel a great sense of, of, of shame when I know that I'm living in a country where there are illnesses that have been eradicated in other parts of the world, where we have one of the lowest rates of life expectancy for Aboriginal people. In Australia, for example, we still have examples of trachoma. And I understand that tra What's trachoma, trachoma is, an, is, a, is a disease that affects the eyes. I don't know the exact details, but it can lead to complications, probably even blindness. Uh, and trachoma has been wiped out in most, country, most developed countries and even in, in some developing countries yet Australia still has trachoma. Australia still has people with rheumatic fever, and that's been dealt with in most parts of the world. So we have some of the some, some hor horrific health statistics that affect Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, and largely because governments are reluctant to give resources, they're reluctant to, to, to consult with communities and allow communities to determine what they want to do, and they're reluctant to put resources into into rural and remote areas where people are challenged by distance. So it's not uncommon, for example, for a person who needs dialysis, kidney dialysis, and rates of kidney disease are very high among some members of the Aboriginal community. So somebody who needs dialysis has to be flown 500 miles to the nearest settlement to get dialysis. They can't just get it in their local community. So it's it's there are some terrible terrible travesties happen within the health sector, 
that affect Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people far, far more than the rest of the population. So as you're talking, I can sense that you feel a degree of great responsibility. Well, I do. I do. I've, I've often felt this. I think when I got my PhD, I sometimes said to people, well, I feel a responsibility to articulate what I consider to be important issues for Māori, and I feel that I need to do the same in Australia. Because... I think once you get a qualification, it gives you a certain responsibility to actually use that to do something to make a difference. And I have to say, I remember my supervisor, Paparangi Reid, saying to me, if your research is not going to make a difference, then it's not worth doing. So I'll always be grateful to her for that comment. Just as we wind up, often criticism is levied at Māori who have chosen to live and remain in Australia because their skill and their resource is helping develop that country at the expense of ours and at the expense of Māori. I mean, where do you sit with that? That's a really good comment. And I have to say, sometimes I do feel a certain... Māori guilt. ...anxiety <laughs> about, being, about being in Australia. But I do. But then I balance that against against other other imperatives in my life. And one of them is that I have a teenage son who lives in Australia, so I'm carrying out my fatherly duties by being close to him. Uh, when he gets older, he might come to go to university. And if he were to come to University of New Zealand, I'd be very, very excited because <laughs> it would give me a good reason to come back here. And I often think Victoria would be a great university for him to go to. But he probably will end up going to university in, in Sydney if he does go to university. So, yeah, I do feel a certain amount of, of anxiety sometimes, but I am comforted also by the fact that there are there are thousands and thousands of other Māori who have chosen to live in Australia, and, in fact, we're really doing what our ancestors have been doing for the last two or 300 years, going to and from Australia. And I, I, I guess I'm also comforted from the fact that I'm very fortunate to be able to come back to New Zealand on a regular basis. In fact... I have continued some of my research collaborations with colleagues back here in New Zealand and distance has not been a problem. In fact, we've produced some quite important outcomes uh, by, by, by using the internet. Uh, and one thing I forgot to tell you about is, about is about a great little study that we did in the Bay of Plenty uh, with some colleagues from the University of Waikato uh, where we did, an, where we did uh, an investigation into rates of STIs in the Bay of Plenty. And the way in which Māori ethnicity is or is not recorded. So that's been a really useful document and uh, research project that we've managed to achieve through me being in Sydney and my colleagues being here in New Zealand. And that's going to lead to other work as well. So I think in this day of the internet, uh, it is possible to be on the other outside the country and continue to work with, with colleagues back in New Zealand. And maybe we'll, continue, we'll see more of that as time goes by. Dr Clive Espin, nor Nazi Maru, on Indigenous health research he's undertaking in Australia. You can listen to a longer version of that interview at our website, radionz.co.nz forward slash te where we talk in more detail about the health project. Kiriata Stewart thinks there's a lot to be learnt from Tikana Māori. She argues that architects and city planners should take more account of Indigenous knowledge and says that if this happened, would all benefit. I'm very proud descendant of Te Atiawa, both in Taranaki and in Waiwatu, Wellington. Kia ora kiriata. We're going to talk about Taone Tsupu Ora, Indigenous Knowledge and Sustainable Urban Design. It's a book that you co-edited. Now, after reading the book, I'm guessing what you're saying is that by working with Indigenous knowledge we can create a more sustainable environment here in Aotearoa. Yes, this book's particularly though about urban sustainability because it comes out of work led by the Centre for Sustainable um, Urban Development. So what's urban sustainability? Sustainability particularly around cities, the form of cities, the design of cities, how they operate, their transport, um, planning particularly, how housing works, how water and soil are treated. So how does Indigenous knowledge come into that, Kiriata? I think the, there are so many ways in which it does okay. that you know, there's a long list to start. But one in particular is about 
the creation of communities. So some of the contributors to our book talked about how communities, based on the old idea about kainga, could perhaps be a better, more sustainable community than the way in which modern suburbs have developed. So a kainga has communal space, it has community buildings, it has communal gardens, it's got a space where kids can play, it has houses built around it. And our suburbs have grown up so the houses are separated. So one of the ideas that the, the people at Arake are talking about in, in Auckland is about rebuilding that model, recreating the idea of a kainga inside the urban city. Okay, so that's okay for Orake Ngāti Whātua who are mm. based within a huge city, but doesn't this then make an assumption or doesn't it then entrench Māori within cities? So, you know, we're always talking about mm. going home mm. and it's always about going home, feeding the home fires, staying connected to your papakainga mm. at home, which is some place in the Watwaps. Mm. I mean, isn't this therefore driving that that doesn't happen, that reconnection doesn't happen? Well, I think one of the really interesting themes that came through from this book, uh, talks to me particularly, is that urban Māori have been here all along. When you talk about urban Māori, Te Atewiki Waiwatu or Ngāti Whata Orake, are urban Māori. So that meaning they have travelled from where they came from originally? No, we've always been here. If you look at the one of the, the um, chapters is about the development of the Whareawaka, the that is going to house... Waka on the Wellington waterfront and is also going to be a social and cultural centre. And that is there because that's where the kainga used to be. That's where the waka were pulled up from the water and in one of our chapters we actually have a, a painting that somebody did back in the 19th century of that. You can walk up Taranaki Street and you can see the remains of that kainga where some of the houses are. And we were always here. We haven't been away the people in Arake, they've been there for hundreds and hundreds of years. The city has grown up around us. The same applies to Ngaitahu and Christchurch and to people in Kirikirador and so on. So there are urban Māori who have come to the city from elsewhere, but there are also the urban Māori who have been here before the city was here. So is it is a problem perhaps the definition of urban Māori? I think with something we mentioned in the book is that there are different kinds of urban Māori and I know I'm not the only person who when people make the assumption about urban Māori I feel a little bit grumpy because we were here all along. One of the contributors to the book, Murray Love, who I interviewed to talk about the Whareawaka, said that what one of the things the Whareawaka is going to do is put a footprint, a Māori footprint back in the city. And it's a visible reminder that we are here. Ngāti Whātua, I think, have thought the same thing. They've put their, their carved pole up. And their development of the Rake community is not only, uh, you know, I can't speak for them, but I think that it's got the potential to be, uh, we are here, this is our place. It's not just Paratai Drive there there is a community here. Māori were here all along. We're not so, going away. So this is about establishing visibility? It's about visibility. But it's also... Visibility having, on Māori terms? Visibility, on, hopefully visibility on Māori <laughs> terms. And that's certainly what the people who work on this scope want, is visibility on our terms. But it's also visibility that has to happen in a 21st century environment. OK, why does it have to happen? in a 21st century environment, mm -hmm. because this is the reality we've got. So, for instance, the is being built. Back in the old days, we could build a whare on a hill, we could build it anywhere that you know worked for our own sustainability, but we didn't have to worry about making a rate of return on the building, because we didn't have to pay rates, and we didn't have to pay for power and water supply. So we've got a whole set of new constraints that happen. If you're building a kainga, one of the issues that uh, comes up for Arake for other urban developments is about dealing with stormwater runoff, about mm. building roads and trying to do that in a different way. And that's something we didn't have to think about because we didn't have asphalt roads, we didn't have sewerage to deal with, partly because we didn't have huge numbers of people in small spaces, but also because technology is here. And I guess it's, it's that example you just mentioned around water that I'd like to explore a bit further mm. because... That is where I really understood the con 
tikana Māori concepts right. that some of the writers were talking about that mm. needs to be included in design, which is the use of water, like separating off water tanks. And I became more aware of this when mm. we were um, going through our uh, Amarai restoration project mm. and we had to decide, did we want the kitchen water running off in this way? Did we want it separated out from the ablution water? Yes. And that's because, you know, the um, according, you know, for us, water mm-hmm. has the ability to be transformative in terms of how we view concepts yes. and how we yeah. undertake our tikana. Mm. It has a very important role as part of the whanau mm. process. And it also, uh, it also has its own Māori. You know, there's a lot of the elders talking about indigenous knowledge. There's a lot of different words and terms to describe types of water. You know, they're talking about still water and running water. So that's, I mean, that's something I'm interested in, not just in terms of this work, but other work that I have done in the past. And I've learned a lot from some of the elders about, um, particularly in the Hokianga and in the Bay of Islands, and projects that I was uh, able to provide some assistance to. And their understanding about what water meant. So it's it's a really big issue in the city because obviously where does water come from? How do we get it? How do we value it? But also what do we do with it? Because I guess over time, Aikiriata, we've become so removed from that knowledge. Where that knowledge was known, the water yeah. that we drank came from that maunga over there, mm-hmm. went down this awa, Hi. you know, this is what we use. But yes. over time, we've mm. become more removed from that knowledge. Yes, and one of the things that uh, perhaps some people think is that that knowledge isn't relevant in the 21st century. But we know a lot about land and water, where water comes from, how to dispose of it, how to keep it clean. A lot of those ideas are now being picked back up. So if you think about the issue, this is not an urban one, but about um, dairy runoff, some of the mm-hmm. solutions to that are actually to plant and to plant other plants, which we know pick up that water. Now, that is knowledge that we had. We used to use swamps to clean water. The the Waitangi Park development in Wellington is a classic example of that. We're going back to using the swamp and the sifting through gravel to clean stormwater before it goes back out into Wellington Harbour. And that is using uh, indigenous knowledge in a modern environment. So that's one example of how values or tikana Māori can be transferred into practical design. What's, what are some other examples? Some of the other examples is also it's about housing. So we have um, a couple of contributors who've talked about specific buildings, one of them being the Farewaka, but another is a, a Māori architect who's been d- developing houses which are more sustainable using some of the models from traditional housing. So a maho, a porch, mm. where people used in the old days used to live outside a lot of the time. And sometimes those were built into the hill, as they are on a lot of the hillside par. So that was a good way to keep warm. And those knowledges are now being reused into building houses. But not only the physical aspect, but also the integration of the house with its environment. It's, it's the soil and the water and the birds and the trees. Having all those as part of a system, which is what modern architects are trying to bring back so that a house is not something imposed on its environment, but something it interacts. And there was mention about the uh, when you're placing a house on whenua, knowing mm. the history of that whenua. Yes. Knowing the things that have gone on there and... Mm how that's impacted on the environment and I, I guess, yeah. you know, the, the impact that your house or your housing could have upon that. Yes, very much so. Yeah, And that's a very Māori way of viewing mm. something like that, isn't it? Yeah. I think there is, in, you know, I'm, I'm new to the area of sustainable development and I've really enjoyed both this project and the previous one I've worked on with the Centre for Sustainable Cities. I've done a huge amount of learning but one of the things that, that really appealed to me when the idea of working on this book came up was that sustainability, the indigenous movement, the, the international movement, picks up so much of indigenous ideas, and that is that the world is an integrated system, that water depends on air and depends on soil. All these things relate together, and that if you don't have respect 
for all of those as a system, something is going to go out of balance. And it's a huge challenge in this environment, in this world. But to try and put some of that balance back, I think is part of what this book is presenting, is ideas about putting the balance back. So sustainability, you know, I don't have a lot of technical knowledge about it, but the language and the ideas that people talk about sustainable development are ideas that talk to Māori, that march alongside ours, even if they don't necessarily match ours always. Is it a fair enough comment to make, though, Kiriata, that perhaps that knowledge isn't as dense as it used to be? You know, there's not that many carriers of that knowledge that, in a way, we have to reinvigorate it or reconnect up with it? Absolutely. I think that's a really important point. So much has been lost. One of the, the projects uh, Wiki Walker from, from Auckland, from Manukau, talks about is her work on trying to put local knowledge about the area into a spatial planning model using new software, using um, geographical information system software. Mm -hmm. When you actually use GIS software, it's actually very easy for ordinary people to use. You can go on and you can click on a map and you can find out all sorts of things about it. So it's a wonderful tool. But they talked to elders about what are all the different names by which this area was known, or this street, or this tree, or this piece of water. And they've recorded those, and they're trying to link those back to books, to maps, to pictures, to other pieces of knowledge. But one of the things they know is that there is so much which is lost, which will never come back. But what that does then is impose on us the responsibility of recording everything that we can. And, and the work that Wiki has, has done, and I know is being done in other centres, is a really important part of making sure. It's actually sure. been done in Australia too. It's been done in Australia. Yeah. It's been done in a lot of countries. There's actually a whole indigenous um, GIS movement, apparently, which I didn't know anything about. <laughs> it sounds really exciting. So yeah, there's all this work going on because we've got these kamatua now. Let's try and get everything we can recorded so that things aren't lost. And when I was, uh, I was, you know, thinking about the big themes, um, one of the things I ran across was a quotation from Serapanata, and he was saying that uh, knowledge should be lost if we don't look after it. He said the time for hiding Māori cultural treasures is past; they shouldn't be lost. You and others should have them kept, as the Pākehā keeps his records and knowledge in print on bookshelves that those who care may read and learn. And I love the fact he talks about those who care because it's, that's a big word about caring and cherishing. We've got to look after that knowledge and we've got to value it. But it's not a new idea that we've got to record these things. Next weekend, the Bay of Plenty Township of Kawaro is about to get overrun with black belts and the occasion, the very first National Māori Taekwondo Tournament. Matt Ransom is one of the organisers. Kia ora. Um, we're really excited about this event. It's the, uh, the first of its kind that's been held in New Zealand by the national governing body, Taekwondo New Zealand. And it's something that we've been wanting to do for the last two or three years, and, and that is to give our Māori athletes the opportunity to get out on the mats and uh, gain a national title, but also promote the sport for Māori youth. Does that make an assumption that there's quite a few Māori that do Taekwondo? Yes, we have a lot of Māori people doing Taekwondo up and down New Zealand and, and we've had some success overseas with international representatives such as uh, Daffod Sanders, who uh, a few years ago was our Oceania champion. He's still competing internationally. He's a fantastic role model for our sport. But up and down New Zealand, there are a lot of Māori people performing and, and uh, competing in the sport. And uh, we really just want give, to give that a, a higher profile and, and, and let, let our Māori people know that uh, it's, a, it's a fantastic uh, sport. It's a great lifestyle and uh, there is a pathway to the Olympics. The, the first New Zealand National Māori Championships are being held in Kawarau. Um, that's obviously getting a, a lot of attention at the moment with uh, Danielle Hayes, who was uh, New Zealand's top model. Uh, her father is uh, one of the organisers on the day, so uh, we're hoping to welcome him and the whanau there. 
Kawarau has been an important place for the development of taekwondo, which is one of the reasons why we're holding it there in conjunction with a uh, memorial invitation event on the same day for uh, a master Norm Edwards who uh, taught taekwondo in the region for, for over 30 years to Māori youth and uh, sadly passed away last year. But the event's been held at the Ron Hardy Recreation Centre in Onslow Street, Kawarau, on Saturday the 20th of November. Uh, it kicks off, excuse the pun, around 9am and it'll be going all day. Uh, it's a combination of an invitation event as well as a national championship so it'll have a real festive feel about it and uh, we're hoping to have some pretty awesome displays during the day and uh, looking forward to welcoming the public and, and everybody's welcome to come along and uh, support the sport and, 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 the, and the local athletes. Matt Ransom from Ngāti Daukawa on the inaugural Māori Taekwondo tournament being held next weekend and Kawaro might see you there. Here he is again delivering his take on this week's Fakatoki. Mahia te kai, hatimu te tai, kapao te toria. We work at getting food, for the tide is ebbing and the oyster catcher strikes. In Taekwondo, it's all about seeing the opportunity and seizing it. And this saying is quite relevant to our sport because we teach our athletes to to work hard and when they see an opportunity, to be ready to be able to capitalise on that. So we think that this is quite relevant for our sport. Te Rākauhua or Wild Tapu Trust breaks all the rules when it comes to theatre. Tomorrow, its play, The Ragged, opens in Wellington with a cast of 35. There's a rule broken right there. A cast of 35. Next week, Tiahika will have a review of The Ragged as well as a cordial with the writer Helen Othene Pierce. I hope you'll join us. Kua taia no mātou ki te mutunga o Tiahika mō tēnei wiki. He mihi tēnei ki nga kai kōrero katoa. Anō nei te mihi maioha ki tā mātou kai rā wiki wiki mihini ngā mihi. Hoki mai hei tērā rātapu mai te whānau a Tiahika ki a tātou katoa. Māori ora.